and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Now, my guest today is Simon Lillevelt. He is a business engineer with extensive experience working in banking, central banking, and also acting as a supervisor. So he's not joining purely just as a hater of the system. He actually understands it and is able to give an informed critique about FATF and some of the various AML laws that are impacting the world today. So today in this episode, we talk about the problems of FATF. Who are they? Where did this organization form? What impacts are they having on the world? And what kind of tricks are they using to take advantage of crises, as well as what are the ways to push back? This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy Bitcoin and also learn about Bitcoin. Swan makes all kinds of resources available for free, such as Jan Pritzker's book, Inventing Bitcoin. You can get this by going to swan.com slash free book. Swan also has 21 lessons available for free. And there are also various resources being made available through the Swan Canon. So this is a great way to show people a curated pathway from various people in the space, people like Matt O'Dell or Jameson Lopp and various others. And of course, there is Pacific Bitcoin coming up on the 10th and the 11th of November in LA, California. That website is pacificbitcoin.com and you can use the code Lavera for a discount on your tickets for Pacific Bitcoin. I'm hoping to see you there. And for our next sponsor, it's Blockstream. Blockstream is creating Blockstream Green. This is an industry-leading Bitcoin and liquid wallet. So you can gain access to powerful features, having multi-signature security, full node verification, and supporting Tor, the Onion Router. Now, with Blockstream Green, you can do this either with single signature or with multi-signature. So with the multi-signature option, one key is held on your device and the other is held on Blockstream's servers. So you can have two-factor authentication and give you some additional protection. Now, there is a time lock and a third backup key that ensures you still retain full ownership of your funds. Blockstream Green also has integration with hardware wallets like Blockstream Jade, Ledger, and Trezor devices to give you the best of both worlds. So with Blockstream Green, you can get convenience, security, and control. It's available for iOS, Android, or desktop. Go to blockstream.com green. For those of you in the Bitcoin mining world, Brains.com are offering Brains OS Plus. This is auto-tuning mining firmware that allows you to increase the hash rate on your Bitcoin ASIC machine. You can improve efficiency by as much as 25%. You can mine on any pool or point your hash rate towards Brains pool and you get 0% pool fees. So some of the supported models are the S19, the S19 Pro, S19J, S19J Pro, T19, some of the S17 models, and they've got in the development pipeline, Watts Miner M20S and other Antminer X19 models coming. So make sure you sign up on the mailing list to know when support for those comes in. Now on the Brains website, you can also find a range of content. They've got their blog, they've got their insights page which allows you to get a view of the mining ecosystem and you can see things like the hash rate and mining profitability calculators also so that's all available over at brains.com and now onto the show with simon simon welcome to the show Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, Simon, I've been seeing some of your work. I uh, found it really interesting, and I thought this is a perspective that a lot of the Bitcoin audience would love to hear. Often, not all Bitcoiners, but many Bitcoiners are anti-financial surveillance, and we can see uh, FATF, AML laws, sanctions laws, and other associated laws are being bucketed under this category of what's called so-called financial crime. Now, I know you have a long storied history and background working in banking, central banking, with a professional view on the world of payments, 
banking and uh, monetary history also. Um, so I guess, could you maybe just start with a little, just a brief intro on yourself and some of your history and your background in this space? Uh, okay, so I'm an uh, industrial business engineer in the, from the Netherlands. I graduated, I think, uh, more than 30 years ago on the first emergence of point of sale in the Netherlands. So that hooked me into electronic payments. I remained in the payments business sort of ever since. Uh, moved from ING Postbank, a very big retail bank in the Netherlands, to the central bank where I supervised uh, electronic money at that point in time. The likes of DigiCash and such, those were the discussions in those days. I witnessed the development of the e-money directive, which is sort of the stablecoin directive of uh, 20 years ago, and moved on to work at the Central Bank uh, Bankers Association, and for 10 years right now, I'm an independent consultant. So I've been around the, the, the block, both in terms of blockchain technology or Bitcoin, Bitcoin technology, as well as seeing developments in financial regulation develop over time and seeing the institutional boundaries change over time. I see. Yeah. And I think it's also fair to say that we've seen this continual creep of AML, anti-money laundering laws, the so-called anti-money laundering. Uh, we've seen this continual creep over time, and we've arguably seen insufficient concern for human rights, effectiveness, cost of all of this. Uh, and I know this is something you've been quite critical of in terms of FATF, the organization. So FATF stands for Financial Action Task Force, for those listeners who are unfamiliar. Um, and so could you tell us a little bit about how this regime started and how it metastasized it, it grew to this massive regime that exists today and it seems so powerful how did it become this way well i'm going to venture out on a bit of uh, history and and science here um if you look uh, there's a, there's a very good dissertation by mara wesseling um i've hidden it somewhere in one of my numerous threads on on, on twitter uh which outlines the uh, development and the political economy behind uh, the FATF as an organization, but I should say as an organization, because if you go to the beginning of the FATF, it starts out as a project. Around 1989, uh, the G7 sits around and figures, well, we need to do something about anti-money laundering. And there's always a sort of, if you look at, at financial regulation, at, at uh, bank regulation, it's always like first a crisis and then bank re regulation, then a crisis, then bank regulation. So that's the intrinsic dynamics of regulation. Now, if you position this same dynamics in the area of money laundering or criminality, then you can see uh, an attack, the 9-11 attack, and then further legislation, then a new attack and new legislation. So if you're able to ride, if you're able as a regulator to serve on the ride of incidents, uh, on the waves of incidents, you're able to put in place a massive uh, framework for uh, anti-money laundering, even, even though the, the, the crime of anti-money laundering is, if you rank it in priority, uh, next to a lot of other crimes like genocide, war crimes, you name it, stealing money from government doesn't hurt that much as other uh, crimes that do hurt society far more. So what you can see is a sort of hijacking by ministries of finance of the topic of money laundering, putting it high on the agenda and moving it out of the uh, criminal law area where it should be, where it should be prioritized and be irrelevant into the financial supervision domain. And there they said, it's hugely important that everyone starts acting like a police officer and catch all money laundering criminals. And that's, that's a hijacking trick that has occurred. And if you 
serve the waves of uh, attacks and incidents properly, you can go a long way. And that's that's what happened. The, the project team that the Financial Action Task Force is um, was set up in 1989. And until to date, it's still a project. It has never become an international organization. It's not a legal entity. If I'm a bank officer and someone asks me, can you onboard the FATF? It's impossible to onboard the FATF. Actually, if I were to be onboarding FATF, I'd see a lot of red flags. I'd see them being hosted by the OECD. So that looks really reputational, but it's a reputation trick. Of course, the OECD supports the FATF, but the FATF itself is not an international organization and thus not bound by international treaties on human rights. So it should have become a formal organization. And the thing that you see governments all around the world doing is pretend that the FATF is a international governmental organization. And if you read the real letters, the the clever writers of governments always make believe that FATF is an organization, but it's not. It's still a project. And that's, uh, there's a very good reason for it. You see in some of the evaluations of the FATF that they're, yeah, they're happy with being a project because it allows them to shield all their activity. It allows them to be non-governed, in fact. And that's what's happening. It's a, it's, and that's a classic European or a classic international trick. But I'll explain the trick a bit later then. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so as you, as you rightly say, in a way, they are pushing so, you know, all this cost regulation and surveillance onto the rest of the world, but they're actually not very accountable themselves, as, as you say. Um, and so you had this great thread. So listeners, I will put the links in the show notes so you can check all of that there. But you had this great thread breaking down how some of this came about, because you mentioned that in a way, it was driven by tax authorities and some intelligence agencies wanting to reap data. So could you just elaborate how did that happen? Like, why why did it turn out that way? Okay, so um, if you go back to about 1999, I think uh, even uh, somewhere in the US, there was a like a proposal on, we should pop in all kinds of data of customers who's, who are sending a payment and receiving a payment within the payment, because that makes life easy. If we do that, there's a lot of uh, information to be harvested. It's it's the, the non-big data world, so we use financial transactions as the data stream of that moment and we allow police officers to fish in the data stream that's the basic idea in the 1990s uh, in the us so this is being put forward for congress and basically there's a storm of people saying no it's a violation of privacy etc etc so it's impossible to get it through uh, there there are apparently many many uh, there's a huge resistance against against, against this so the intelligence agencies still want it because they, they the problem at that point in time, as they presented internationally, is, well, well, if there's a crime going on in the US and someone in Europe has paid a criminal in the US, we want to be able to track it and to ask a police officer from New York, to ask a police officer in Groningen in the Netherlands to give the data would be very cumbersome. It's a cumbersome procedure. So if you just put in the data, then the police officer in New York automatically can, and can ask at his bank, who, who sent the, inf- the info and he can get the data of the Dutch customer without going to the Netherlands and asking formally on the data of the Dutch uh, person sending it. So it's a, a neat trick to avoid in the, the proper international procedures of collecting data from customers that are on the different side of the world. And at that point in time, the internet was was already there. You could say, send an email or do your work properly. But that argument basically stuck within the minds of the regulators, and they felt like, yeah, we want to, uh, we want to make sure that there's no anti-money laundering, and that sort of the sending of data from the sender and the receiver 
originated from a sort of, well, it's more easy for the police officers. So they have all the data in hand. So you can only ask local the data. That That's the, the, the basic conception. Didn't really fly too much. Uh, they tried to push it in the US. And then with the 9-11 attack, this was the momentum. They added terrorist finance to the mix and said, no, all these rules are not just for money laundering. They are for terrorist finance. And and are you against, I mean, do you want to promote terrorists? You don't want to put the data in. So you're, you're in favor of 9-11 attacks. And that trick is being repeated ever since. So we, we, we wait for the next attack. You can see the regulation in, in Europe also, regulation on prepaid cards. You can see the commission want more regulation. Then they wait. And the cynical thing is they, want, they wait for the Paris attacks. Then the Paris attacks, Charlie Hebdo come in. And next up is the European Commission saying, yeah, we want to add the, an extra layer of anti-terrorist finance regulation on it. It has nothing to do with that attack. It has everything to do with regulators waiting for their shot to put in the next layer of surveillance regulation. And that's a cynical reality of anti-money laundering regu- uh, regulation. And the cynical reality is, uh, is that the efficiency and the effectiveness is completely forgotten. I mean, there's there's been critical uh, questions within the FATF itself on its effectiveness. Like, show me the money, show me the goods. How many stuff did you prevent? We have 20 years of this stuff already going on and no success stories. There's only after the fact stories. There's no prevention success stories. And there would have been if they would have had a case. So there's there's really a lot of effort being put in. Like, yeah, I was at the bankers associate here. I had to tell them, yeah, we have to put in all this information. And then the bankers asked me, okay, so do the regulators think that Mr. Open Bapen Laden has an account that he wants to send money from? And that's why we need to check the word Obey Laden in every transaction. Is that is that the idea? And then you have to say, yeah, well, yeah, that that's the duty. And everyone knows it's silly. It doesn't, doesn't make any sense. Oh, Beilada doesn't have an account and he does make sure he will never have an account and still be able to move money. So these are all, yeah, political measures and, and uh, allowing a lot of surveillance by uh, intelligence agencies and by police officers who can then snoop in local data without anyone else in the world knowing that the data has been harvested. And now, crucially, historically, let's say pre that regime, if a police officer or the tax office, let's say, wanted to get some of that data, they might have had to go and ask for a warrant, right? They might have had to actually go through some legal process to get access to that data. Whereas nowadays, it seems that there's so much data sharing going on, and we're in this environment caused by FATF and caused by this ratchet effect of uh, continually expanding regulation, such that now the privacy and security of the everyday consumers and everyday businesses is just being completely given up in favor of this uh, regulation. Yeah, well, to to really position this, um, we must be aware that that within a couple of weeks after the 9-11 attack, the uh, US uh, law enforcement achieved to uh, sort of open up the data of SWIFT, the international banking network, by saying this is very important, we need to know what's going on in your network. And Swift is a European company, but it does have a server in Florida. So they opened up the Florida server to look at everything happening in Swift. And that led to a huge political debate in European context, described in this dissertation by Mara Wesseling on, um, on, on, the, on the moment in time when this stuff became political. It was like the a sort of Max Schrem moment on, on Facebook, but then at that point in time for Swift. And that led to the situation where a couple of 
companies and industries within the financial sector decided, well, we need to have our local data locally in Europe and not harvest, have it on a US server, because if it's on a US server, it can be impounded and taken away and be read by US authorities. So there are some couple of moments in time where there's a political discussion on the topic, but most of the time, uh, the, the topic of uh, monitoring is sort of pushed away, depoliticized, made technical, like the travel rule for crypto. It's, it's made it into a technical discussion rather than the principal uh, legal uh, discussion that it should be and the political discussion. Do we want uh, government to be able to monitor everything uh, via this, these kind of measures? And is it proportional? That those, those are relevant questions. And when it comes to the principled argument, I think and maybe we'll get to this later, but in terms of stopping this, uh, does it require some kind of public awakening or at least more people knowing about this, right? Because I'm sure if you just talk to the average person, if you talk to the average guy on the street and you asked him, okay, maybe if he ever had to send an international wire, he had all this trouble or, you know, he might have occasionally had some banker call him and say, hey, what's this transaction for? But he doesn't really know who to point the finger at, right? Because from his point of view, he's probably thinking, oh, these banks are just being assholes or they're just really nitpickers. He doesn't actually see the root cause of this issue, right? Because he's blaming his the person who he's interfacing with, but not, let's say, politicians in his local country or even at the FATF level. Yeah, and, and the, the nice, uh, uh, here comes the trick. So the thing is the following. I take 12 countries. With the 12 countries, I decide on the tunnel vision for monitoring. Now, we don't have any uh, governance or say in this, but we're going to collectively set up a working group. Uh, we call ourselves Financial Action Task Force on Fraud. It's a project. Then we're going to devise standards. And we're going to say, yes, these are our standards. So who are they? Well, tw 12 persons thinking the same. But if those are from 12 big countries and you mesh up and you make a big billboard on how important you are and such, then you'll go home and say, you know, there's this very important international group. <laughs> it's myself, but in a different role. A very important international group. And that has set a standard for anti-monitoring. And, and, and it's really imperative that we implement it in the Netherlands. It's the, the classic bureaucratic trick of getting a home country to implement rules which have no democratic uh, basis because then the minister um, minister of finance goes to the parliament and says there's an important international group has set standards uh, for anti-money laundering it has the support of the g20 it's it's excellent it's so you you throw in all the keywords for politicians they think like well oh yeah oh well, okay yeah apparently everyone agrees no you're being tricked. It's the oldest trick in the political book. You just push in local standards and local rules by make believe that the international organization that has made them, which is yourself in a different setting, uh, <laughs> has, has done that. And it's an easy trick. It's been pulled all, all the time. Uh, you see it happening with BIS standards. You see it happening with FATF standards. You see it all over time. And politicians yeah, are, are, are only human, I would say and unable to, to yeah, flat the balloon or, or pop the balloon uh, on, on this topic. And if you let this flow for a couple of years, and, and if you let the incidents on terrorist finance and money laundering be your uh, oil on the flames of, this, of these regulations, if you are able to institutionalize this into a permanent organization or, or project form, which has a certain standing, then if you succeed in the first 10 years, 
you will be there forever because you've set up an institution which will not be disputed anymore. No one in government will know the origins of the institution. So if you pass on your work to your to the to the next policymaker in, in finance or the next policymaker in a central bank or the next supervisor, they will say the FATF is there forever. They set the rules, we implement. They won't they won't go back to history. So no one will go back to history. So if you got the ball rolling, if you've got the momentum, and if you keep fanning the flame, then you're able to, well, continue. And that's, uh, I think, uh, two years ago, their 30-year achievement was to have an eternal mandate as the FATF. And they succeeded in sort of solidifying their grip on financial legislation, while effectively they are still ministries of finance writing anti-money laundering surveillance law. It should be ministries of justice writing the rules with which to dispute personal data around the world. It's Ministry of Finance who say we want tax money. Uh, yes, our concern is so big that we're going to label everything as money laundering. So so money laundering itself is a specific criminal act. But if you just say the proceeds of any criminal activity are also money laundering, then you've captured the whole world of crime into your, into your uh, propaganda. And then you see these pictures like, oh, do you want the sale of ivory of elephants? This is money laundering. No, it's robbery. It's it's all kinds of criminal acts, and then somewhere along the line, money laundering. But but you see the, the if if you're able to pull the trick, get it into an institution, get it flowing. There's no there's no stopping rather than than fierce institutional counteraction. That's the only uh, way that could stop this. And I can imagine that there are all kinds of entrenched interests here also because because it's such a big world there's so much money in the compliance department so there's jobs in this there is technology vendors who are making money out of selling this kind of sanctioned screening software aml screening software transaction monitoring software customer identification you know scanning all this kind of um, document uh, authorization with various government departments there's all this technology and money now and there are vendors now who don't want to lose that business. So you could almost argue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very cynical as well. I, I know very early on in my work at the central bank, there was an international project, CLS. It was called CLS, like a, a big international payment sort of project. And um, the central bankers wanted something, but the market wasn't providing. And then they said to the market, you have to provide or otherwise we will do it. And then the market got scared. And then they started doing it themselves while the central bankers themselves figured, we don't, we don't even know how to do it. But we just scared them. <laughs> off and then they'll build it themselves because there will always be someone who's early on and saying oh yeah yeah, i'm gonna build it. i'm gonna build the solution so you take the keenest guy wanting to make the big bu- biggest buck the earliest solution and you promote that so you can use the market against itself for implementing a measure which you are unable to achieve yourself it's, it's a big con game but everyone's falling for it you see the travel rule discussion on crypto is following the same path been there done that seen it before there and and it's um, you cannot break that magic. It will always work. So it's a classical one in the book of bureaucracy. You just say, yeah, this travel rule, it can be done. It's a technical matter. It can be done. We have people, we have companies coming to us telling us that they can do it. And I mean, it's the easy trick. And then everyone's like, huh, who are the companies? And then yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then then there are those who are completely new to the game, who are impressed by authority. And if we got to work with the regulators, yeah, no, no way. If the regulator is out of line, you got to push them back. You don't have to work with a regulator that is out of line. So there's a balance to be struck, but there's always within an interest community of market players, 
a bigger cloud of, 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 of entities that says, oh, we've got to work with the regulator, keep good relations. And that means for that reason, you will always end up with travel rule-like solutions in, uh, in those kind of settings because the market as such can be driven to that. And that's, I mean, those are the pragmatic dynamics that um, uh, the United States as a strong force behind the Financial Action Task Force is able to really exploit. They are able to maneuver uh, institutions and, and, and their governance and their flavor into all kinds of areas. And there's there's a lot of scientific literature about how they are able to, to change the flavor of the IMF towards a more neoliberal goal. They, they, it's, it's a piece of cake, in, institutionally speaking, to move the boundaries. But it takes a long game, a long game perspective uh, to do that. And if you're early on, you're able to set the momentum, it's never going to go away until, until some counterforce or counterpower is able to to tweak the wheels and, and put the carriage off the rails. And that's sort of happening slowly right now. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I also want to get to that topic that you mentioned with FATF influencing local countries. And so as we were talking about this, so as you mentioned, the trick is that they all sort of get together and say, oh, look, see, there's these big standards and oh, look, here's a report with the recommendations. And oh, well, you better implement all of these recommendations, country A, or otherwise you'll be on the gray list. Or if, if not, if, then you'll be on the blacklist. So could you just explain that dynamic where countries are getting pressured to implement all of this AML regulations, even if they don't necessarily want to off their own bat? Well, the, 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 basically what happens is uh, there's a dual game, game going on. First of all, there's the formal FATF rules, and, and it's like a class of people, or there's a, it's a complex organizational structure with direct members, indirect members, and such. So the uh, principal idea is we're going to set ourselves some standards, we're going to make some best practices, and then we are going to do some peer review, sort of peer review like in science, peer review of countries, but it's called mutual evaluation. They, they stole the idea from the IMF, uh, the IMF idea uh, or the World Bank idea where they do evaluations of country, country evaluation, whether they could get a loan, yes or no. If you take that idea and you put it in the anti-money laundering standards department, you get the mutual evaluation of the FATF. So it's a clever copy-paste of an international mechanism. And as such, it's it's like every policymaker says, oh, yeah, I know the mechanism. We do this also with the IMF and the World Bank. So that, that rings a bell. It sounds familiar. And you get a structure where you can say, well, uh, we're going to evaluate each other. So that's the formal part. And we're going to see how well are you doing? We're going to help you out, blah, blah, blah. The informal part, which is not in the books, is that the uh, the U.S. as a big buyer in the market phones up your local ministry and says, "Hey, listen up! If you don't pass this evaluation, we're not going to do A, B, C, or D." And then they pull out some some geopolitical uh, leverage that they have on the country. So you combine the FATF formal procedure with informal pressure which is if you don't live up to the standards, then uh, you're not going to get some business and that's going to cost you money. And that creates the incentives for countries to adopt these standards to, to, to make sure that they apply. Uh, you, there's the, the, the penalty of the gray and the blacklist, of course, but there's the hidden unseen penalty of, of Big Brother uh, uh, US saying, well, sort of handing out goodies, compliments, taps on the shoulder, money or... Uh, handing out negative incentives if if you don't comply. So uh, there are ways and means of um, manipulating everyone into 
compliance behind the scenes and and yeah that's that's sort of the there's the, the the FATF sort of is the visible side of the metal but there's another side of the metal that we don't don't even see and we'll never get to see it by the way so <laughs> but we must be sure we must be sure to to be aware that it, that it exists back to the show in a moment unchained capital can help you with securing your coins in a multi-signature vault what does this mean it means you need multiple keys to sign a transaction to spend your large stack of Bitcoin. So this can help you by giving you that peace of mind and removing single points of failure in your security setup. So with Unchained, they offer a concierge onboarding. So you can go, you can pay for a sign up, they can send you the hardware if you need this, and they'll do a call with you and walk you through setting up your multi-signature vault. And then they will walk you through withdrawing the coins out of your exchange or your custodian into keys which you control. And this gives you so much more peace of mind. So this is a great step to take for those of you who are still leaving your coins on an exchange, or you might even be thinking about this to upgrade out of a single signature wallet setup. So that website is unchained.com slash concierge. Use the code Levera for a discount there. When it comes to Bitcoin hardware security, coinkite.com is the site to go visit. They have a range of products, most notably the cold card. The MK4 is the latest model out. It has two secure elements. It has NFC support, and it's a very reliable performer. I also really like that you can set up this device without plugging it into a computer. You can just plug it into the wall or use the cold power device to power this using a battery. Now, CoinKite also offers a range of other products. So, for example, there's the Sats card. Think of this like the new version of the OpenDime. It's much cheaper also, around $7 or $8. Uh, the TapSigner is also a cheaper device designed either for the developing world or perhaps for a more convenient use wallet with NFC. So you can find all of this over at CoinKite.com and get a discount on your cold card with the code LEVERA. Are you still using a plain old block explorer? Bitcoin has grown beyond a single layer. It's now a multi-layer ecosystem and mempool.space is helping you as a comprehensive Bitcoin explorer covering this ecosystem. You can see the mempool, you can see the blockchain, you can see second layer networks like Liquid and recently the Lightning Network. So you can search Lightning Network nodes, you can see things like what channel fee rates they are charging you can also set up mempool.space on your own server so that you don't have to trust a third party it's available on some of the full node distros like umbral raspberry blitz and others and if you are with an enterprise mempool.space offers customized mempool instances with your company's branding increased api limits and more go learn more over at mempool.space slash enterprise and now back to the show with simon Right. And as I understand, you correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but as I understand, one of the ways they try to leverage this is they'll say things like, we'll cut you off from the banking system. Well, we'll cut you off from SWIFT if you don't do X, Y, and Z AML. No, 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 that, no, that, that, would, be, uh, that would be too harsh and too direct. Uh, it could be more nuanced. It could be like, we're not giving you firsthand intelligence on these and these and these kind of matters. If you know that a country is dependent on you uh, because you have a um, superior uh, intelligence apparatus, you can put that in as leverage and say, well, you know that uh, previously we gave you information on uh, on what happened in the countries surrounding you on economic sites or, uh, for example, economic data, or there's all kinds of data or information that, that, that you can share with other countries on a certain basis. And then you say, well, we're going to cut you off from this data because we don't like how you treat, uh, we, don't, we don't feel our data is trusted with you because you don't apply our anti-money laundering standards. The, the relevance of the example is that it's been document, documented uh, somewhere in scientific articles that after the application of the travel rule within the banking system, a couple of American companies 
um, uh, succeeded in um, uh, penetrating certain markets due to the information advantage that the Americans uh, would have because of the fact that they knew exactly which data was going where, from who to where to whom. So the economic intelligence part of this whole travel rule discussion must also not be overlooked. It's, it's a tool in the box of the intelligence agencies. You could even go as far as um, link the fact that they stopped pursuing Phil, Phil Zimmerman uh, on PGP from the fact that you can link it to the emergence of the FATF standards. Rather than trying to break open PGP as an encryption algorithm, they opened up the sea of bank transactions. <laughs> There's so a heck of, heck of a lot of information in there. I mean, let those guys with PGP do their, do their thing. If, you're, if you open up the bank accounts of everyone and you're able to tap that stream, uh, that's, that's uh, eternal sunshine. I mean, that's, that's, that's what you want. So there, there, yeah, there, are, there are advantages to be gotten and there are goodies to be handed out or punishments to be given behind the scenes. And that sets you up for a uh, momentum and a structure um, in which you can formally, uh, I mean, I'm having this view due to my 30 years in the industry looking at institutional change. Uh, you can witness this happening very slowly. It's, it's like a, a, a glacier that's losing some snow every year. You don't see it, but over 30 years of time, you see what's happened. And this is what's happening here. And everyone new in the game, uh, the, 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 the cynical thing is that, that uh, new players, new policymakers, new bank, uh, new crypto people, everyone new in the game starts off taking the stuff literally. Like it's literally about money laundering, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they feel they're doing a good job and they are doing a good job because th these are honest, true people, true to their heart, true to their mission. They don't do anything wrong, but they are doing stuff within a frame that has a history and a context that I would recommend reconsider the frame, reconsider the frame in which you are working. I, I don't want to dispute the honesty and integrity with which those people are doing their jobs because a lot of people do want to get rid of money laundering and all, all that stuff. And that's a valid goal. But the total structure, the incentive structure, the institutional structure, the lack of governance, the lack of democratic control, those are the things that we should worry about because it leads to a lack of privacy a lack and, and the lack of digital sustainability. We cannot allow our government to do this because our next government, in, in the Netherlands, uh, we are very keen. We have a very serious algorithmic, uh, the tax authority has done algorithmic profiling on people, cut off their benefits, taken away their kids, a couple of thousand, uh, and basically violated their human rights by use of IT. So the idea that a government will never infringe on human rights of its own population is disproven in the Netherlands of today. That is what's happening in the Netherlands. That's that's why I think the Netherlands is a sensible place on human rights violations. We are we're sort of selling it to the rest of the world like we're the, the the country where everything's possible, but in fact we are violators ourselves. And that's that's the the assumption under the FATF rules is that your own government won't cheat on you. But that assumption is false. It's been broken and it's being broken all the time if you look correctly in what's happening. At least that's what we can see in the Netherlands and other countries I'll, I'll leave to other people. But that's why, why I think, uh, it's, at least it's why I'm so fervent on this, on this topic. I'm, I'm really, this assumption, the government is not your best friend. The government is your worst enemy and we must design systems so that it can't be your worst enemy. That's, that's the, the uh, and, and right now the FATF is designed to be the mass monitoring. The effect of the FATF is that people don't get bank accounts. Uh, people are phoned. What's this transaction doing? If you if you say I've had a dinner in a Syrian restaurant, 
your payment will be annulled. Uh, you will be put on a list of your of your bank. You get a phone call. So what's the Syrian stuff? If you try to send money to a school in Uganda, no way it's going to get there. I mean, we've and, and the FATF calls this unintended consequences of their standards. But it's way more than that. It's we, We've designed a system where ministries of finance set up cleverly anti-money laundering standards, anti-terrorist finance standards. They hypnotize the whole world into going with them, pushed a little bit of, on the background, some incentives to, to get the system rolling. And once you get it rolling, it gets its own legitimate flavor. And that's that's what's happening here. And um, yeah, you, you can, they, I don't, all kinds of dynamics. In, in many of the threads, people will read all kinds of references to scientific articles describing uh, bits and pieces of the puzzle that I explained. But I hope the, the, the listener is still with me. <laughs> yeah, right. No, and, I, and I think you're right. And I think one of the important points pertaining to the rights aspect is that in some ways it's overturning these hundreds of years old legal principles, like this idea that you are presumed innocent before guilty. And it's turning a lot of that on its head because if I go to sign up for a bank account or if you go try to send an international wire, it's now all of a sudden you're assumed to be a criminal almost and you have to prove why you're not a criminal. You know, how, how can this be? How can we be in this place where in most of the Western world or most of the banking world, you're treated like you're a criminal by default. Um, well, to understand this, um, you need to understand that in law, at least I, I always divide law in three areas. One is contract law. You and me have a contract. The other one is criminal law. It says, well, uh, you, you cannot steal a car. And in between, there's administrative law and financial supervision law. And that should be about uh, someone who, who, who holds your money you should have a safe bank and a big vault, sort of, like those kind of rules. Uh, now, the basic trick that the FATF has succeeded in pulling, is putting anti-money laundering as a topic onto the agenda of financial supervision. It should not be there. It's a criminal law thing. It's anti-money laundering. Okay, it's a crime. So deal with it with the rest of the crimes, hire more police, and get, get the crooks. That's what you should do. But by putting it into financial administrative law and sort of making everyone's head turn around like, yeah, you, you've got to catch the criminals. You are responsible fight, for fighting crime. No, not. We're banks. We're responsible for, for keeping money safe. Or we're crypto companies. We're all in crypto or we're exchanging crypto, but we're not crime fighters. That's the police. It's a different department of our society. It's a different role for government. But we've we've put the monkey on the shoulders of the private sector, which is not where the monkey should be. The monkey should be back in the cage with the government. That's where, where the monkey of crime fighting and anti-money laundering should be. But yeah, if you if you pull the trick clever and that's been done, then you can create a sense of norm normalcy around it. Yeah, which is where we stand right now. So there's a there's a challenge. <laughs> yeah, sure. And so then the next question is around reporting and what we are arguably seeing is a lot of over-reporting because it's quote unquote cover your ass. Right. So just to explain, just to back up for a second. So some of this regulation it's based on different things. In some cases, it's based on the threshold. So for example, a transaction above $10,000. And in other cases, it's based on this idea of being a suspicious transaction. And so they have to file a suspicious transaction report based on, okay, if Stefan Levera is sending money to some business in Iran, as an example, they'll be like, oh, okay, that's for a suspicious reason. We're going to put a suspicious matter reporting. Um, if I and and they've got all kinds of rules and they basically force the banks to have these kinds of rules to pick this up. And so, as I understand, there's a lot of reporting. Basically, these banks are just sending thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of reports to their local regulator, right? So in each country, 
in the US, it might be FinCEN. In the UK, it's um, FCA. In Australia, it's like Oztrack. Uh, you know, there's different ones. And basically, they're just sending all these reports, millions of reports. But These are uh, sort of illegal data distributions because someone in the private sector is saying that he's going to disclose your private data because it feels like suspicious. Well, either you go to the police and say this is a crime or you don't or you stop doing business. But why why do this snitching? It's basically snitching. Uh, but it's uh, the, the advantage of snitching is that if you get some into trouble, it gets you a free pass. It gets you an exemption from everything follow on, following on to your reporting. So that's, that's a goodie, uh, for which reason a lot of companies throw in everything they have into, into this data reporting because you get a free pass. If, if stuff goes on and someone gets fined for money laundering, they can't put liability on you as a bank who reported him for the, for the stuff because you, you got a free pass. It's not your thing. So it's a clever incentive structure dis- devised within uh, this whole system to make sure that a lot of information flows to the authorities. And then in the Netherlands, we go beyond. We don't, we don't report suspicious transactions. We report unusual transactions, which is even more. And for each of the, tra- the transactions, if, if we go back to the three pillars of, of law, within the administrative law pillar, indeed, as you said, the assumption is that you're, you're guilty until you prove innocent. And it's crazy to think that within criminal law, we take so much care to, to worry about due process, being innocent until being guilty, while at the same time, your money is held hostage with a bank until you prove you're, guil- uh, you're, you're not guilty. So there's, there's this reversed ransomware system where the money is keeping your mo- uh, where the bank is keeping your money as a ransom until you show your, your, uh, your tax uh, payment or stuff like that. I, I, I stole this one from uh, George Provost, by the way, uh, a developer here in the Netherlands. He said it's reversed ransomware. It's not like, like they, they block your computer and then if you pay money, you get your computer back. No, it's they, they block your money. And then if you show information, you get your money back. It's, it's the reverse mechanism, but it's just as effective. And it's improper. It's a violation of the human right to be innocent until proven guilty. And that's innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, not in the court of banks, bank supervisors and FATF officials, because those are not the people in court. They are just administrative tax paying tax authorities. They are not the people who have been educated to uh, respect your human rights when being suspected of a crime. So uh, indeed, this, this this violation of the presumption of innocence is, is very ongoing and worrying. And so when it comes to all of this surveillance, there's also this notion that, um, you know, people have said this idea that if cash was, in, like physical cash was invented today, they'd ban it or they'd, they'd put massive controls on it. But they do right now. Right. That's happening today, actually, yeah. Right. And it's almost that like because cash has been around for so long and that was the default way for many people that they kind of have to allow it in certain ways. But at the same time, as I understand, these organizations, let's say the banks and so on, they are often mandated to do some kind of money laundering risk assessment. And as part of that risk assessment, they have to look at, oh, okay, how easy would it be for people to money, you know, to launder money? And, you know, if you can send a lot of money through, then you're meant to rate that high risk and therefore you should be doing more controls on it. And there's kind of all these elements and nuances to it. And all the while they've got this, you know, like a sword of Damocles hanging over their head. If they don't do enough, their license is gone. And so this is kind of, that's like this dynamic where each country has their own, let's say, regulator and lawmakers, legislators, uh, who are sort of holding that threat over any businessman who wants to be a legal businessman in that country. 
Yeah, well, the the interesting thing is that the uh, if you speak to bank supervisors and try to address the human rights element, they are completely gone. They think you're from a different planet, uh, and that's that's very interesting to note because when the sanctions on Russia came in, the the consequence was that everyone from Russia was being blocked by banks. Oh, better safe than sorry. Let's block everyone, and this is like this categorical blocking because there's a big risk and you don't want to be be safe rather than sorry. But by being safe rather than sorry, you're denying a lot of people access to the banking system. And this is exactly where the FATF is hurting already for 10 or 15 or 20 years, a lot of people in society. This whole system uh, where you need to go look for risk and say, no, we're not going to do it. There's a risk of money laundering, etc. or this categorical denial. Then the FATF quickly writes up, no, 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 we never wrote down that there's a categorical denial. No. And then the central bank in the Netherlands in the last, the last months also said, no, 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 we're not asking for a categorical denial. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, if you get fines for not doing certain stuff, the, the message is pretty clear. Kick everyone out. That's a big risk. Kick them out. Cash out. High risk. Are you sure you want to keep it? You get three times the same question. Are you sure you want to deal with high-risk customers? Well, the fourth time, a compliance officer is not going to say, uh, yes, we're going to keep them. He's going to go to his board and say, we're going to kick out high-risk because I get the supervisor on my neck all the time. Ah, oh, it's killing me. So this is the structure. You can uh, deny as a supervisor and a regulator that you're that you're pushing out all kinds of risk while the effect is completely the same because you're throwing in a lot of fines, a lot of hefty fines for violating so-called money laundering rules. We're, we're really keeping each other busy with a lot of a uh, lot of work and energy that we could spend on making the planet more durable, sustainable and happy place rather than than seeing a terrorist behind each tree. It's 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 uh, it's everyone knows it's a waste of time, a waste of resources, but we're still in the same dance routine and we keep on dancing the dance routine uh, and it won't ever stop until we make it stop somehow. Right. And I think part of making that stop is the principled approach, as you outlined earlier. And I think many others in the world who are anti-surveillance from a principled point of view, whether they are libertarians or otherwise, they see a principled reason to resist these things or to speak out against FATF, against AML, against these um, things like this. Now, I guess one other question and area topic here is that in some cases, it seems like there's a bit of shooting the messenger going on. Because as an example, people will often point out, as I'm sure you're familiar, there's this historical example with HSBC, where they were, I think, apparently helping launder some money for the Mexican gangs or cartels and stuff. But at the same time, is that like, how much of that is on the... Um, so as an example, here's what might happen, right? So as an example, people will say, well, look, see, HSBC did were helping launder money for the gangs in Mexico, as an example, or, or whatever. Then what happens is the public in that country or in other countries, let's say, in a, and I've seen, I, I, I think arguably you could say you've seen this in Australia, where some AML scandal comes, and then the public get angry at the banks. And then it's almost seen like, oh, see, government, you need to regulate those banks harder because they're letting all this money laundering happen. So I'm curious, how do you sort of dis disentangle that in terms of, you know, the principle of the matter and FATF and AML versus like those individual banks in those countries, let's say? Well, I think the, the error of judgment is the following. If you want money laundering to stop, it's the same as if you want the wings of an aeroplane not to wiggle when it flies. If you want an airplane where the, where the wings do not wiggle, it's going to crash. Systems need slack. Systems need slack and areas which are gray 
unregulated, doomed, dirty, leaking. That's what a true system is. There's no such thing as a clean system. There will any system in the world is sort of rotten, has its feedback loops or whatever. But you mustn't try eradicate something because you will never succeed. And it's not a natural thing, a natural state of things. A terrorist is only a terrorist as long as the government is a good government. If the government is a terrorist, then the terrorist is the legitimate citizen. If you reverse the roles and you create tools in the hand of governments with which you can eradicate stuff, that you don't like, at some point in time, the government's going to change and you've given a very bad actor in the far or distant future or in the near future, a tool in hand to basically be the dictator for everyone in the world. And this is what's what's concerning me in the sanctions area as well right now, because we're sort of using the sanctions tool too much, too hefty. I mean, we need to use it in this terrible situation in Russia that's happening right now in the war. There's, there are reasons to do so. But the mechanism that we are using, we are politicizing our money system into this is good, this is bad, and you can have your money and you cannot. And I'm, I'm not certain where that's leading us. I, I think we, we crossed the Rubicon there. And I'm very concerned that, that we find this way of thinking normal. Money should flow everywhere. You should use different tools from a different toolbox to get the stuff to catch the crooks, to catch the criminals, but you should not misuse the money system, the money supervision system, to uh, to achieve those goals and and that's those objectives and that's that's what that's what's happening here and that's the error in design, and then it's an easy part of the natural local dynamics to say well, uh, because the the government wants to present good deeds and they're gonna do the blame game and it's easy job you're gonna blame the banks yeah yeah the banks are already ripping you off but they're also laundering money. Yeah, that that's possible, but but uh, I mean, what what we need to solve this is good freedom of information request, open responses of government, good lawsuits that challenge the government to be open and proper and precise in their in their dealing of of things, and then we can slowly lift the wheels of what's happening and create awareness. Uh, but that's that's for for uh, insiders uh, interesting to see. But for outsiders, it's 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 too far gone. It's too far off. It's well, yeah, you don't care at your bank. Oh yeah, they were involved in, in money laundering. Well, fine, uh, let them be fined. And I didn't trust my bank anyway. I mean, these these games are already clouded with standard politics of blame gaming, uh, bankers for everything that happens in the world. And and that's not fair to bankers. Uh, it's not fair to crypto if you do this to crypto. It's uh, but it's the reality. Um, of our current uh, society where a lot of social media creates these spins where you can just pull the card. It's an anti-terrorist measure. Okay. And then you get a green pass for anything you propose. It's, yeah, it's a reality of this moment. And we can only try to uh, let the sunlight of information and lawsuits uh, correct uh, some of those uh, things. And, and luckily this uh, this happened in the Netherlands. I assisted the company in in reverting uh, the course of history because the Dutch central bank was already implementing an FATF travel rule via the sanctions law. It wasn't in the sanctions law at all, but they 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 sort of made believe that this was the case. But we were able to get it to court quickly uh, because they effectively required a mass monitoring of every transaction, which is a profiling AVG uh, GDPR discussion. Uh, it's It hits all kinds of buttons in the human rights area and the privacy domain. And that created an urgent call for the justice 
to say, we're going to quickly resolve this because the central bank behind the screens had been saying, oh, well, try and get to court quickly. It's going to take years. It's Corona time. So see you in court in two years. And then we pulled out the mass monitoring AV GDPR card and said, okay, see you in three weeks. Here's, here's the deed and um, uh, explain to us what happened. And then they tried to say, we, didn't, we never asked the question or we, ne we never asked this requirement. Um, so the whole, whole industry had to write a letter. They did require it. And last week, a Freedom of, of Information request came out, which outlined neatly how the central bank was doing this all along, um, anticipated it and on purpose. So, so by freedom of information request, you get the word out, you get the information on table, and you have to combine it with lawsuits and make sure that anyone acting improperly is being sued so that it's corrected in court uh, um, and damages are being paid and such. That's, that's, if everyone would dare to do this and keep the relation with the supervisor good, because it's, it's, it's just a matter of different interpretation. There's no, there's no harm in, in suing the regulator. Everyone's uh, afraid of it. No, it's just, a, it, it's a game. They're going to say, well, this is our territory. And then you have to say, no, no, it's not. <laughs> this is your territory. Oh, we disagree. Okay, we go to the judge. And then the, yeah. the game is that a lot of companies don't want to go to the judge and think, oh, it's going to be scared on the regulator. No, they're just having a different opinion. Just go sue the regulator. That's that's the advice. <laughs> well, that's that's cool to hear. Um, so... Yeah, I think that's an interesting, and this, this is an interesting case because it was one where, let's say, Freedom uh, won back a, a, a victory, uh, whereas over the last, let's say, 10 years, there's been a lot of L's for those people who want less regulation or zero regulation, um, at least government regulation. Uh, yeah, what's interesting in this case is that, that they asked for information at European supervisors and the European Banking Authority, which is the group of supervisors, publicly stated in the midst of June uh, 2020, uh, there are a couple of countries, basically being Switzerland and the Netherlands, that are overshooting in, re in terms of regulation. And even though they're, they're sort of their boss, the European Banking Authority said, well, you, you should stick to the level playing field and not overdo it locally for the Netherlands, they just went on doing it. So this was on purpose against the advice of the European Banking Authority. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was fascinating. But but imagine being one of the seventeen companies being forced to shut down or provide a copy of a screenshot of a wallet as a measure. It was uh, it was a uh, very interesting. But there's uh, some somewhere in the uh, notes. Uh, I think there's a reference to yeah. this case. Yeah, of course. Um, and so. I guess the big topic then, of course, is like around in Bitcoin world, also in, in the EU, particularly is this whole travel rule conversation also. So uh, could you just give a basic for people who aren't aware, what is the travel rule? What does it require companies to do just in the normal fiat transaction world? And then we'll take it into what happens in Bitcoin. Okay. So in 2008, uh, in the normal fiat world, um, the idea was you need to put in the name and address of the sender of a payment and of the receiver and both entities on both sides of the transaction need to do this and check this and have a role in making sure that the information passes on through the network. This rule uh, in 2018, when the FATF had a US uh, president, um, there was more energy on crypto and they figured we're going to apply this rule on crypto as well. There was a discussion within the FATF where the FATF actually wanted each uh, crypto provider to be a licensed institution. But a lot of other players in the FATF said, no, we won't do that because it creates too much le legitimacy. And then the FATF decided, okay, we're going to apply the financial rules to crypto as if they are banks. But there's one caveat. They could have allowed for domestic regimes on the travel rule, which means you just said, send a reference number. And if someone calls you with a reference number, you give the personal data. 
but they kicked that one out. Said, no, no, crypto is international in nature. So you need to throw in your data internationally from A to B. Even between Belgium and the Netherlands, there needs to be all the name uh, from the sender and the receiver in the transaction. Well, then the crypto world said, this is impossible. It's a blockchain. How are we going to change the blockchain code? Ah, okay. There's the bureaucracy trick. We don't know how it works, but you are able to make it work. We have already seen a couple of companies doing it. So then you set in, in motion that mechanism and it's being set in motion for a couple of years now. And then those companies that, that say that they can do it, you put them on a stage in, in Vienna or any FATF stage in the world and say, here are the good guys and say, look, this is how we can do it. So the European discussion is we're going to do the same as with the FinCEN rule. We're going to sort of allow or, or oblige everyone to put in information of the sender and the receiver of a crypto transaction into the transaction or, well, there's a concession or you can send it later. So everyone's going to make some swift-like international network structures in which this information is going to be have to be shared. There's some goodies in the sense that they left so-called unhosted wallet out of the discussion or not out of the discussion. There's yeah, there's some some messing around uh, where people say, "Well, we got a big deal. They're coming. They're 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 doing concessions." No way. There's no concessions. We're going to be eaten alive. <laughs> it's 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 a silly idea for banking from start on and applying it onto the crypto is just as silly as it was for banking. And it's going to cost even more because it's the future technology. And we should solve this problem in a different way, but we're locked into pursuing our uh, previous errors. So so we've already hurt the banking sector to a degree where people don't bank anymore because of those rules. And now we're going to hurt the crypto industry to a degree where the people won't crypto anymore due to these rules. Uh, that yeah. That's the foreseeable future sort of. Yeah, so it's almost, if I had to make a silly analogy, it's almost like if the regulators back when uh, automobile cars were coming out, if they mandated that you had a horse to pull your car as a backup as well. It's almost like they're trying to say, you're not allowed to have these cars unless you've got a backup horse as well. And it's just kind of like completely unsolving the problem of automobiles right? that's solved. And so what we are arguably seeing is, some of the uh, so that to use the you know regulator parlance they call it VASP virtual asset service providers and they're saying these VASPs VASPs have to set up this kind of consortium network amongst each other and so in Bitcoin and quote unquote crypto world they have to set up their I guess the, this is what they're looking at right like the large exchanges and perhaps large custodians are looking at this as a way of saying okay well this is how we're going to try to comply with the FATF rule uh, and then all the while. We have people talking about, well, what's what's the response to this? Is there something that can be, is there some way to push back on this? Or is it just going to have to all go fully underground? Um, what are some of the ways that, you know, are there any avenues to push back here? Um, okay, so I'm, I'm going to limit myself to formal avenues because I think it's basically an institutional game. There's a big institution messing around with the rules. So we must start out with a lawsuit against the OECD. The OECD has rules on human rights and they want companies or they want countries to abide with human rights laws and they should do so themselves. They are sponsoring with their secretariat the FATF as a project group. As a project group, if I would rebrand the participants of the project group into Google, Facebook and Apple and say, well, these are the the, the, the standards of Amazon, Google, Facebook, Apple's for monitoring and, and risk management in e-commerce, it would be completely gone. The OECD would not be allowed to host a mass monitoring project group of big techs. Why would they be allowed to host a mass monitoring group of 
governments because they are governments. No, it doesn't matter whether they are governments. It matters whether they violate human rights. They violate the human rights because they prescribe mass monitoring, and that's a violation of a UN charter on privacy in the digital age. So we have our privacy charters. We have our uh, UN charter on human rights, which are being violated consistently by a secretariat hosted by the OECD. So the OECD should be held to their own standards. And, and, and I would be looking forward to any lawsuit by an NGO in Paris towards the OECD, uh, violating them for um, hosting a, a criminal crime syndicate that does structural violation of human rights. That's the uh, institutional approach that you would have to take to sort of uh, make sure that they organize themselves as an international uh, organization. Because as such... Once they turn into an international organization, they have to abide with the human rights standards and all kind of governance rules, which are not applied right now. So we need to get the governance in order. It's a, it's a long-standing criticism of the FATF, but they keep ducking the issue. They're a project for 30 years. That's, that's not a project. That, that is serious law evasion on the side of people who want people not to avoid the law. Yeah. I mean, there's a huge, there's an interesting uh, dissertation or a... A, a, a script sheet, it's slightly less than a dissertation. You must not turn into the monster that you're trying to fight. I think the FATF has turned into the monster that it's trying to fight. The only ones benefiting are the terrorists, which scared the whole Western nations into setting up rules where we inflict harm onto ourselves by controlling everything without any any benefits. So, so the true winners are the terrorists who achieve the fact that we are basically keeping ourselves busy with rules that that don't go anywhere um so so there's uh but firsthand oecd as a hoster of the secretariat there's a lawsuit over there and in each country um and uh, constellation the european union you'll have to use the institutional structures file complaints file lawsuits be vocal about the violation uh of, of human rights and repeat the message over and over and time and over again um and that might set the wheels in motion. Best best way would be, of course, if any high-profile politician is being somehow subject to the uh, negative consequences of these rules, um, which will which will happen in due time because we have a um, register on all assets coming up in Europe. So all assets must be disclosed. We have a UBO Ultimate Beneficiary Owner Register. There are a couple of things going on that I would suspect will lead to more publicity, incidents, problems, and I would hope the institutional wave would flow the other the other way around, but uh, we're never sure. Yeah, well, I think that's I think you make some great points there on ways that people can push back in an above board manner. I'm curious, Simon, are there any organisations that exist like this today? Like, can we donate to that, or you know, do do we need to set something up for this? Like, do we need to like make a website, make an organisation that's going to drive the fundraising to to make this kind of lawsuit happen? Uh, yeah, we, we might want to do that and think about setting it up or making sure we find those organizations. This is really a niche area. I've been pondering the thought myself. I, I've set up a website, humanrightsinfinance.eu, but it's really a, a mock-up website because the idea is in my mind to, to do something about it. But your question is very, very good. I think, I think we should go for this lawsuit in Paris with a Find Amnesty International, Bits of Freedom, Privacy International, Electronic Frontier Foundation... Uh, whichever group uh, wants to join and tries, first of all, to kick out uh, OECD as, as being the secretariat of the FATF. That that would be step one. Yeah, I, I would be 
yeah, we'd have to think about it. I'm, I'm, I'm in principle, I'm on a sabbatical right now, but this, <laughs> this topic is too important to let it go. So, so yeah, I, I would, I would favor anything that that would flow that direction. Well, I'll tell you what. I think um, there's probably a lot of listeners of my show and just Bitcoiners out there who are, you know, anti-financial surveillance, and they would probably donate for this kind of thing, because I think many of us see, like, I, I can understand, like, the general population like many of them may not really kind of be interested in this kind of thing but i could imagine those people who are privacy focused might be interested in finding a way to push back so maybe that's something uh that, a good that... french lawyer good french lawyer because the ocd is in paris so we we certainly need a good french lawyer and take it from there <laughs> well if, if you're out there get in touch <laughs> yeah yeah good yeah great idea so simon i think um it's been a great chat with you um we'll probably have to do this again at some point I, there's so much stuff to cover yeah, that's quite a lot but um for for now uh, where's the best place for people who want to find you online or just get in touch? Um, I guess my Twitter account, uh, Finhist Amsterdam, on financial history. This abbreviation of financial history of Amsterdam, uh, because history matters. Uh, I, I think that's the, that's the issue here. Um, uh, that's the best way to to get in touch or see my website. You'll 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 find me if you if you look for me. You'll find me. Fantastic. Well, I'll put I'll put the links in the show notes. Simon, thank you for joining me. Okay, you're welcome. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed the show. I also ended up writing an article after my chat with Simon. So I've got that in the show notes. It's over at Bitcoin Magazine. It's called FATF and AML is a war against Bitcoin. So I hope you enjoy that. And let me know what you think. Get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 424. Thanks for listening. And I will see you in the Citadels. <laughs>